Well, we're back in Ecclesiastes. If you're just joining us for this season, I want to welcome you to the book of Ecclesiastes. It's a, it's a different book altogether, but it has been an extreme joy to have been walking through this particular book together with you. This morning, uh, we're going to talk about people in general and the need for companionship in particular. Um, as America becomes more digitally connected, this is not news for us, as we become more digitally connected, we are some of the most disconnected people and lonely people on the face of the planet. We are a nation of lonely individuals. We have exchanged community for privacy, right? And the teacher's goal here in the book of Ecclesiastes, the preacher or the teacher or the critic, I will call him at times, his goal is simply to persuade his readers not to go at life alone, but to commune with others, to commune with others. And that's why I've entitled this sermon as the communal lessons for a lonely world. I won't ask for a show of hands of how many people have watched Jim Gaffigan's uh, comedy uh, specials on Netflix, but I remember one in particular. I see that hand back there, I, and, that, and that one there. So yeah, we have, we have a lot of honesty here at Mercy Hill, which is great. I remember a little uh, deal that he, he did where he said this, I want to look at myself while I go to the gym to work on myself. I should make a recording so that I can actually listen to myself while I look at myself, while I work on myself. And I'm, as I listen to that, I, I laugh, but I'm like, oh my goodness, it, it is so true of me, right? This isn't just an American problem, it's a human problem. Every person wants to belong. Every person wants to commune with others because that's how we were made. When I came in this morning, I saw Josh McCoy, and I haven't seen Josh in two weeks, and I gave him a big man hug. You know why? Because I missed him, and I just wanted to embrace him. I did the same thing with Troy today, just seeing guys that are in my life that I miss, and I look forward to seeing this morning, he'll be mad at me later for doing this, but I just want to say, praise God that Brother Tony is here, Kanoi's husband, who we've been praying for for many weeks now. Tony suffered a stroke, and it was really scary. Honestly, it was a really miracle that he's not only survived, but that he is here with us this morning. And just really grateful to see my brother uh, who is here. God has been shaping his life in the midst of surf, uh, suffering, in the midst of tragedy. And we're just grateful to see him. This week, Carla and I had a beautiful couple of days together with some of the other pastors and their wives to retreat together to the Send Network Gathering. And it was a great time of retreating together, just Carla and me. No boys this time. And as much as we enjoyed our time away from home, we really did miss our little rascals at home because we love them dearly. We love our boys. Yes, boys, we love you. And uh, we do miss you dearly when we're not together. Uh, it doesn't feel like home. There's something missing when we're away. 
You see, we are made for relationships. We are made in the image of God, equal, both male and female, made in God's image. The triune God, one God, three persons, who has existed eternally in relationship. So this is not anything new. Our creator himself has lived in relationship and community. And he's made us in his image to live in community. Ecclesiastes has been talking about a lot of hardship in life, right? The harshness of life under the sun. Echoing the early chapters of Genesis, right? I mean, we find the problem of loneliness throughout the text. The oppressed are lonely. We find the wealthy business person in this text who is lonely. We find a king at the end of our text who is lonely. And there is a longing for belonging in a very complicated and complex world. So there's much wisdom here for us. And we see that relationships are more important than achievements. Relationships are more important than wealth. And contentment is just, it's a great, it's greater than accumulating wealth or even being famous. But as David Gibson reminds us in his commentary, that the subject of relationships is often not the dominant question in our minds. The dominant question in our minds is about me, not we. And so we want to flip that this morning to be asking not just how am I doing with my life, but how are we doing with our lives today? The one person I am actually very acutely aware of is me. And I don't think I'm alone in that. The preacher here is trying to give us a better way to live. Notice this word better shows up in our text in verse 6 and verse 9, and it goes on. I've just simply followed his pattern and developed some uh, lessons today that we can learn. Our, Our text contains the first of two clusters of this idea of better sayings. Here, the preacher says that we are better together. The question then is not how am I doing, but how are we doing? We see that this this better way to live, it brings joy in life. It brings meaning. If you love with a concern for others besides you, namely your friends or family or neighbors, a spouse, brothers and sisters in the church, it actually brings meaning to your life and it brings great joy. It brings, as verse 6 says, a sense of quietness, a sense of calmness, a sense of peaceableness, right? That just sounds good uh, this morning. Ecclesiastes has been teaching us to simply enjoy life. And here it is added because we should enjoy life with others. Not just enjoy life, but enjoy life with others. The preacher sees four things under the sun. And this is a text on hardship and companionship and the better way to live. We see these four subjects going to show up in our text today. Number one is oppression. We're going to see also a uh, toil or work. Toil, this idea of envying of neighbor, it often motivates our ambition to work. Or greed that can lead to isolation and emptiness. So we see oppression, we see toil. We also see friendship. True friendship 
brings many blessings. Amen? And then we see also leadership in verses 13 through 16. Good leaders pursue humility before God and before others. And so through these observations in our text, Solomon, or uh, the critic here, wants us to see a better way to live, a better way to live. And so first of all, in verses 1 through 3, we see that the oppressed yearn for comforters. Read with me in verses 1 through 3. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed. They have no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was, there was power. And there was none to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. Wow, what a pessimistic way to live. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not yet seen the evil deeds that are under the sun. In chapter 3, verse 16 and following, the author laments this lack of justice in the world that Pastor Med talked about last week. He continues thinking about oppression here, and he reflects on how the oppressed have no one to comfort them. They're alone. Oppression is real. The tears that they're crying are real. Looking ahead in chapter 5, verse 8, which Pastor Ricky will be preaching on next week, the preacher says, if you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are not yet higher ones over them. You see, in the Bible, there are various ways to see that people are oppressed. We see the cheating of one's neighbor out of something. We see making unjust gain. We see the abuse of power. We see the neglecting or harming of the vulnerable. We see the denying people of rights and justice. And these things, as we see them in the Bible, uh, they leave the oppressed in tears. Oppression is, is not something unique for the people of God to experience. Remember the groaning that took place in the book of Exodus when they were under the Egyptian oppression. Oppression is awful. We see oppression in our own day. We see genocide. We see the killing of the unborn. How many millions of unborn have been unjustly killed? We see sex trafficking. We see terrorist attacks, sex abuse, child abuse, and the list goes on. James, the book of James, the author of James, reminds us that we are to take care of the afflicted, the affliction of those who are oppressed. In James 1, verse 27, he says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And here in our text, the the, the preacher's main point is that the oppressed have no comforters. They're alone. He repeats the phrase twice in verse 1. They have no comforter. He says, isolation increases this pain. It increases the tears. You see, this was the same cry repeated in the first poem in Lamentations 1, chapter 2. You see, they have no one to speak for them. They are voiceless. 
They have no one to be with them. They have no one to comfort them. In verses 2 and 3, it says that the darkness of oppression, it leads the critic or the preacher to make this conclusion, that death is preferable. How bad does things have to be where death is actually better than life? We might actually feel this at times as we look at those who are being cruelly persecuted or inhumanely tortured. Solomon here is considering life under the sun, and it is filled with oppression. And the oppressed are often isolated and alone, disconnected. So the question is, is who do they need? Who is it that they need? They, they need friends, right? They need friends. They need family. They need community because that's how they were made and that's how we are made. They need God's people welcoming the stranger, comforting the hurting, visiting the imprisoned, satisfying the hungry. I cannot help when I read this text but thinking about Matthew chapter 5. Verses 34 uh, through 40. And, and what many of us enjoy all the time is absent from others. It's absent from many. The gift of comforting friends. We all need comforting friends. The next sight that this critic sees under the sun, it considers work. Our motives and our relationships are considered with the act of toil. The act of toil is mixed with twisted motivations. Look with me in verses 4 through 8. And then I saw all the toil and all the skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is hevel, empty, vapor, smoke, right? And it's a striving after the wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. It's the first knuckle sandwich, I guess, you, you see here in, in verse 8. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after the wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches. And so he never asks, for, for whom am I toiling? For whom am I de depriving myself of pleasure? He says, this also is hevel, smoke, vapor. It's vanity and an unhappy business. He mentions four topics related to toil. Envy, laziness, contentment, greed or busyness. So I just simply want to look at each of these one by one. First of all is this idea of envy. Envy. Ecclesiastes 4, verse 4 says this Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Let me ask you this Why do you work so hard? Why do you work so hard? You see, we can have twisted motivations. Are you driven by rivalry? Are you driven by power or by status? Solomon sees the desire to simply outdo one another or outdo others as a motivation for many. I think of the words of Nacho Libre. I want to taste the glory 
I want to know what it tastes like. You remember that? Okay, anyways. <laughs> Practice that a few times. When you see someone successful, or they have something that you want, possibly a job or a situation or abilities or a girlfriend or a boyfriend, what, what is your response? Is it envy? I want what they want? I mean, even Christians in ministry are tempted with jealousy, aren't they? Think about James chapter 3, verse 16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder in every vile practice. It's, it's not very optimistic. When we envy someone, we usually do three things. I want to talk about these three things briefly. First of all, we want to fantasize about them, don't we? When we envy someone and we see something that someone else has that we think we deserve or want, we overestimate their greatness, don't we? We idolize them. And this leads to wanting another person's life rather than just simply being grateful for our lot, being grateful for the hand that has been dealt to you, and being faithful with what God has given to you. We fantasize about them. But second, we can demonize them, can't we? I mean, envy can turn wicked very quickly. You hate the person with envy. You, you criticize them and attack them. You gossip about them. Uh, gossip is often motivated by satanic gossip. You, you rejoice in their downfall, right? Oh, I'm so sorry to hear about what happened to you. And inside you rejoice. When, when you're, and that's evil. It's evil, plain and simple. When, when your joy is tied to the downfall of others, that's evil. But not only do we fantasize or demonize them, but those that we envy, we also tend to compete with them. I've got to be honest, this text really convicted my heart. I was sharing this morning with the Bible study, becoming a little transparent with some of the guys, and confessing, admitting the fact that I have insecurities that I have carried with me throughout my childhood into adulthood that I still even battle with today. And I'm thankful God is not done with me. He's still making me more like Jesus each and every day. But this envying a neighbor, I have the soil of sin in my heart where envy can just grow. And it can grow, and those roots begin to deepen in this soil. And if I'm not careful, if I'm not watchful, these weeds will start poking out. And it will come through in my behavior and in my thoughts. I don't know if you can relate to that. But this idea of competing with others, it is something that I have struggled with often, even into adulthood that I need to sever. But you know what this is like, right? It's you want to beat them. Those that you're envying, you want to beat them at what they do. You want to keep up with them at the very least. The, the envious person resents the, uh, another person because of their good gifts and because they are superior to his or to her own. It, it's not just that the other person is better. But that by comparison, their superiority makes you feel your own lack, your own insecurities. 
And so dragging other people down and taking from them what they have, it, it, it makes us feel better about ourselves. This is the twisted motivation of competition. It's not life-giving, it's life-taking. These things, it, it can destroy and kill community in any hope for a deepening relationship with someone else. And here's what you do. You end up putting on a mask and you fake it. You fake rejoicing with others' joy. You fake rejoicing at their success. You fake your happiness with others when others succeed. Your work, I mean, you work, you work, you work hard to hide and conceal your true feelings to the point that you have resentment and even bitterness toward others. You see how fantasizing about people and competing with people can lead you down this road of bitterness and resentfulness toward others? Friends, if it is impossible to rejoice at another person's success, you have a problem. I have a problem. How easy it is to live in this envy-driven life instead of living a Christ-driven life. Consider Proverbs 6.34. For jealousy makes a man furious. I mean, that's what it does. It makes a man furious on the inside. And he will not spare when he takes revenge. Or how about Proverbs 14, verse 30? A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh. But listen to this. But envy makes the bones rot. You know what envy does? It destroys you. It makes your bones rot. When you see a Christian brother or a Christian sister, someone working skillfully and faithfully, here's what we should do. Instead of fantasizing about them, instead of demonizing them, criticizing and gossiping, instead of, instead of uh, uh, doing these things or competing with them, here's what we should be doing. Remember our church covenant, church, family. We will rejoice at each other's happiness. What, what does that mean? What does that look like? Here's what it looks like. We're going to rejoice in their success. We're going to learn from them. <laughs> you're skillful, you're gifted, you're succeeding. I want to learn from you. And so, and then we're going to encourage each other to go fulfill our jobs for God's glory and for the good of our neighbors, for the good of others. Rivalry will not produce healthy relationships. Proverbs 14, 30, again, it makes the bones rot. Rivalry and envy will not make you a good friend. It will not make you a comforter to those who are oppressed because you're obsessed with yourself. It's all about me, myself, and I. You're obsessed with yourself, and you're obsessed with outdoing everyone else. You see, it's not loving your neighbor, it's loving yourself. We should work hard out of love for God and for people and not out of envy or rivalry. You see, the preacher here is probing deep inside the human heart. And he's saying all this striving and toiling and working and working and working, it's all motivated by me, by me. But what about others? What do others need? We should stop and ask ourselves, how can I be a giver instead of a getter? A servant of others instead of Lord of myself. 
When we stop and think about serving and loving our neighbor, it keeps us from envy. It battles this heart of envy and want. And the next two things that we're actually going to look at now, the first is on the screen, laziness. Look at verse 5. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Amen. Praise God. Let's go home. Laziness is a way of hating your neighbors. You may have never thought of it in this kind of way before. But you have nothing to give others when you're lazy. This is not the working poor. Those who are poor because they're working, working, yet not making enough wage. But the lazy person who refuses to work. This is the picture of the sluggard that we read about in the scriptures. And instead of embracing life and giving himself to others, the sluggard gives himself to himself. So in the end, all he has left is himself. And that's not going to last for very long. There's no food in the cupboard. So what does he do? He has to eat himself to survive. That's pretty sad. Now, You've never seen a lazy person actually eat himself, but you might have seen a lazy person lose control or self-control and a capacity to care for, and in the end, lose even his self-respect. They ruin themselves. And unfortunately, we've seen many, even in our midst, that have just been so focused on their self that they just kind of give up on work and effort, and they begin to waste away losing even their own self-dignity and self-care. They ruin themselves. Workaholics are often warned that at, on the end of their deathbed, they're not going to look back in their life. They're, gonna, they're not going to look back and wish they spent more time in the office, are they? Ecclesiastes warns us that there are certain people on their deathbed, they're going to wish they spent more time in the office <laughs> because they were selfish. They were selfish and lazy. People who fold their hands cannot use their hands for work, can they? Because they've got them folded. Folded hands show that people don't want to work. These people want to opt out of the workforce, and this is not a very good option. And the teacher calls these people fools, fools. This person is often marked by several things. Number one, they think people should take care of them. They think others should take care of them. Number two, they get mad when others don't care for them. And number three, they they often befriend people of goodwill just so that they can do everything for them. They want to make relationships and be a part of community, only what they can get out for themselves. And the book of Proverbs actually warns these people. Look at uh, uh, verses 10 through 11 of chapter 6 of Proverbs. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands. There's our image again. A little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come on you like a robber and want like an armed man. You see, instead of embracing life and giving himself to others, the sluggard gives himself to himself so that at the end, he's only left with himself. Proverbs adds this foolish, lazy person is an immovable object. Not only will they not work, but they're not going to listen either. They constantly make excuses for everything. Further, they are wise in their own eyes. Look at Proverbs 26, 16. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes. The seven men who can answer sensibly. I mean, just think about the foolishness of that. 
We are not to empower such behavior, friends, but we are to rebuke such behavior. Let's not give in or enable or condone this kind of thing because while we are trying to help others get out of this laziness, we are enabling them and ultimately hurting them. Laziness can cost community. Now, what I want us to do is skip verse 6, and we'll get back to it, but I want to jump to verses 7 uh, through 8, and here we have the opposite, opposite extreme of laziness, but it's no better, okay? Extreme busyness. Look with me at verse uh, 7 and 8. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all of his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of this pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. You see, greed, greed and frantic busyness has led this person to isolation and emptiness. You know the kind of person, the the dream chaser, the business-driven person, the dream chaser who's running from one thing to the next, yet never satisfied? Again, I'm thinking of the song uh, by Brooks and Dunn. I'm in a hurry to get things done. Oh, I rush and rush until life's no fun. All I got to really do is live and die, but I'm in a hurry and don't know why. Sorry to my wife. Uh, she, she probably doesn't even like that song. But anyways, <laughs> um, this person, this busy person is never satisfied always more emails, always more text messages, always thinking about the next thing. And he masks his dissatisfaction with busyness of life because he's always working for tomorrow. Tomorrow, there will be something new. New projects around the house will be finished. Maybe I'll achieve a promotion. My paper will be written. I'll find a spouse. My kids will then graduate. Always looking for tomorrow. And the critic here, the preacher, is saying to us, why not stop and enjoy life today in very real ways? Tomorrow's promotion will only bring more pressure. The higher degree will only teach you how little you really know. The marriage will connect you to another sinner for life. Your kids will graduate only to experience other seasons under the sun. The deadline for your paper, college students, will pass only for another semester and other papers to come running hard at you to be done. Notice he's rich, but he is alone. David Gibson, in his commentary, he illustrates this person well, so I invite you to listen. He writes, he introduces us to the company chief executive. He's made it all the way to the top of the tree, but he's there alone, utterly alone. He has no children, He has no family or friends. His only companions are his work and his wealth. He obsesses over his emails and meetings and reports. When one bonus arrives, he's thinking of the next one. He can't afford to have a wife and a family because they would all just simply get in the way. A social life would curb his output, and the only input he needs comes from a screen and some figures. He could buy dinner for everyone in the restaurant, but no one wants to sit with him. And that's all right, because he doesn't want to sit with them 
either. So there it is. The wealthy, but not healthy. The alone, who is lonely. Possessing everything except enjoyment. You see, it's easy to make a target out of the rich. It's easy to do that. But the Bible is not against wealth. Friends, I want you to hear this. The Bible is not against wealth. It's not money that is the root of all kinds of evils, but the love of money that is the roots of all kinds of evils. 1 Timothy 6.10 says, Paul writes, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And you see, Ecclesiastes says exactly the same thing in picture form. It is the two-handed toiling for wealth as an end unto itself, and this is a root of evil. It it grows like a, a strangling vine around the heart and motivates all sorts of evils. David Gibson writes, It is possible that you know the price of everything, but the value of nothing. Yet there is a better way to live, friends. I want us to jump back to verse 6, and there we see a better picture of a way to live, and that is the life of contentment. There's a better solution here. Better is a handful of quietness. Just think about that. Some of us with kids love the idea of a handful of quietness. Then two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. There is a better solution. A handful of quietness is better than two hands of greed. Two hands representing the attempt to grab as much as possible. It's like little kids at a pinata party. The kids are all about sharing and giving candy, but I'll tell you what. When the pinata breaks, every child is pouncing. It is every man for himself. There is grabbing of two hands and tucking on. I've, done, I've never done this, right? I, I've never been. The ones that are smart are kind of putting it and stuffing it in their shirts. The workaholic is weighted down, isn't he? With everything and cannot rest. He is striving after the wind, grasping for more and more. Ecclesiastes here offers a solution. Here's how to sever the root or to kill the kind of evil of the love of money. Here's the answer. Ready? Spend it on others. Give it away. Do it regularly. Do it gladly. Do it generously and you will be happy. Let me describe it this way. If we love our neighbors by working for them as much as ourselves, and we love others with our own hard-earned money, the beautiful outcome is that in the end, we end up loving ourselves. We actually provide the best kind of care for ourselves because we're no longer living alone, but we have others. Verses 9 through 12 talks about relationship being more valuable than earning. For the preacher, the value of life is is not what you earn, but whom you relate to. It's not what you buy, but what you actually give. One one, one hand holds, and another one gives away. Uh, Both hands are not full. I love the one hand of quietness. The content person has a sense of calmness in the soul. This person is working. 
And he or she has a handful, but also with the other hand, joyfully and gladly enjoys life to serve others. Matthew and I went to drop off our dog, Dixon. You remember this, buddy? At the dog spa. That's what we call it. Every time we say spa, his ears perk up and he gets all crazy. But, but as we were bringing him in to get his shampoo and haircut, um, another lady was coming out with her dog, Melody. Now, she set Melody down for just a moment, and all of a sudden, Melody went running down the aisle with workers frantically chasing her, trying to catch her before she ran out of the door into the street. And the owner was just in shock and yelling, Melody, Melody. The employees were yelling, close the door, get the dog. Harmony? Oh, sorry, they're correcting me. It's not Melody, it's Harmony. Forgive me. Hey, don't interrupt my story, all right? Later, talking about critics, later, Matthew said, Harmony should have been called cacophony. Because harmony caused a lot of clamorous noise. And I'm like, man, we're really thankful for homeschooling right now. I didn't even know what that meant. Um, But the picture is set in contrast to a clamorous noise of simply accumulating more. You end up with two handfuls. And that's a foolish life, the critic says. The other hand isn't mentioned, but the other is for relationships and for enjoyment. Every day isn't a vacation. You actually have to work. That's the one hand. The other hand is for people. It's for generosity. It's for quietness. It's for rest. It's for family. It's for enjoyment of life. One hand is to produce. The other hand is to invest in others, to reach out to others, to put my arm around the hurting, to receive God's love from others, to make memories with family and friends. And the wise person sees, I see a life like two hands. Friends, we would be amiss if we did not talk about Jesus' view of possessions. Luke chapter 12, verse 15 says, and he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Jesus tells the parable of the rich fool who thought that he could lay up ample goods for many years. The man was rich. God called him a fool. Luke chapter 12, verse 21 says, So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich for God. Think about those words. Jesus wants us to focus our lives not on gathering possessions, but on God and promoting the kingdom of God in his righteousness. Matthew 6, 31 through 33, I mean, what we see here, he says, seek the kingdom first in his righteousness. All these other worries will be taken care of, right? The question is for us, friends, have we learned to be content? Have we learned what it means to be content? I want to encourage us to look at Jesus. As always, he shows us the wisest way to live. Jesus did not fold his hands like a sluggard, but he worked. We do not find him envying people who had more, which was everyone. Everyone had more than Jesus in terms of material wealth. But he trusted the Father for everything. He learned to be content. And by his power and his presence in our lives, he invites us to join him in living that way. 
Finally, I want us to look at um, the last point, which is that there are great blessings found in friendship. Great blessings found in friendship. Look at verses 9 through 12. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one is there to lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone. And when he falls, it doesn't have another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. He lists four blessings. Four blessings. First, this idea of uh, sharing and working and producing. Look at verse 9. Two are better than one because they have good reward for their toil. Success comes with cooperation or from or through cooperation. If you want to make money, do it with somebody else. Amen? At least you have someone to share it with. We like saying around here at Mercy Hill, teamwork makes the dream work. And this is true in every sphere of life, whether it's pastoring or whether it's being a student or homeschooling or work or discipleship, we are to do things in cooperation with sharing with each other. Secondly is helping. Look at verse 10. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone, he falls and has not another to lift him up. You see, this image is of the, na- uh, of the near ancient east. When it was hazardous to travel, especially overnight, a fall by yourself may be fatal, especially at night. We need this not just for our physical help, but we need friends to pull us up out of the pit of despair. Amen? We need people who are willing to come and sit with us and and take us out of this place of sinfulness or to give us comfort. Galatians 6 talks about bearing each other's burdens and fulfill it, which is fulfilling the law of Christ. You see, we have a need for community, for belonging. We will fall. We are going to have burdens. If you are con- so consumed with work and not cultivating community, is there going to be anyone there to help you? Number three, I, and I, let me just say, people want community, but they don't want commitment. There is great blessing to be had with friends. But third is comforting and giving emotional support. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? Now, this refers to travelers getting cold when they stay on these cold winter nights. Uh, The picture is trying to survive by sleeping close together so that you can stay warm. Coach Martin, my brother, we took my boys and some other uh, uh, boys uh, camping. Martin is one of our deacon candidates. And we went camping about 6,000 feet up at the mountains. Remember that? How can we forget? It was just before the first snow. I won't forget the sleepless night of looking over and seeing my youngest son, Joshua, uh, curl up close to me. I mean, I couldn't get to sleep because he was like just getting closer and closer until he was like under my body, cuddling up all through the night to draw my body heat. And that is the idea here. However, the, pro- the proverb uh, probably means more than just simply phys- the physical act of staying warm. It can refer here to giving emotional support to a friend who is experiencing grief or adversity or great temptation. Let's face it, friends, technology might be an aid to a relationship, but it can't replace it. You actually need people to be there. 
you need to be there. You can't keep each other warm through a text message. You can't physically keep each other warm online. Helping. Verse 12 says, And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. Three for, a threefold cord is not quickly broken. This is protection. It's a great blessing to have in friendship. You ever been in a fight? Don't admit it. One-on-one, -on -one, you might have a shot. But if you're up against two guys, you have even less of a shot. You watch hockey? I love watching hockey. Why? For the fights. The refs pretty much let them fight until one actually hits the ice, and then it's over. Now, you ever watch baseball? I don't watch baseball for the fights, but I, I love when a fight breaks out, coach, you remember? The whole town, I won't ask you if you've been a part of this, but when the fight breaks out, guess what? The whole team charges the field. How much more important for you if you're traveling alone to have somebody with you? Our family knows this. When we go into the alleys at night, the rule is always have somebody with you. It's better to have a traveling partner. There is actually safety in numbers. There's encouragement with numbers. If the companionship of two people is important, how much better is three? When I've got the world pressing in on me, I love the fact that I know that I have Mercy Hill Church there to support me, to be with me, to lead me to repentance when I'm in sin. That's why we say around here, I've got your back, Daniel. I've got your back, brother. I'm with you. I'm watching out for you. There is safety in numbers. This is why joining a healthy church is so vital to your survival as a Christian. As church members, we watch each other's life and our doctrine. We got you. We're with you. Friends, we have Christ. So none of us are alone. And if you've got a friend, you've got a great thing. But get this, as a Christian, you've got Christ with you, which is a three-bonded cord. This is quite different than the individualism that has swept up the Western world. We need each other. We need to stir one another to love and good deeds. We need to not neglect the assembling of each other. Don't avoid going to church, no matter what kind of darkness or what kind of pit or depression that you're in? Being together is important. We need a help. We need protection and we need comfort. But finally, in this passage, we see a, a, an encouragement that leaders should humbly seek counsel with others. These are communal lessons for us. And I think it's fitting that he sees this as well. Verses 13 through 16. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knows how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne. We got a picture of Joshua here, right? Prison to the throne. And, and, and though in his own kingdom he had been born poor, I saw all of the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. But there was no end of all the people all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice with him, no. Surely this is also vanity and striving after the wind. You see, the preacher began seeing the oppressed in verse 1. And here he concludes in verse 16 with seeing the king's palace. 
So here's the story. I'm just going to summarize it. There are two kings. The first was an old and foolish king. He didn't take advice. He rules alone and he rules foolishly. He is wise in his own eyes. Have we seen people like this? They are wise in their own eyes. You can't teach them anything. So you see, success can make one overconfident, can make someone smug or unteachable. And I've seen this in so many times, and I don't want to be this. That's why when we look out for men and women to lead at Mercy Hill Church, both men and women, we are looking for people who are teachable, have a teachable spirit, have humility about themselves. If not, you're not useful. But the second king is the one who succeeds the first king. He went from rags to riches, something similar to the Joseph story that we see in Genesis 14 and 15. But you see, the second king, even though he had a large following, he was eventually forgotten and he was replaced. And so there are two principles that here call for humility. Number one is Lord's Supper. How about that? Leaders should humbly seek counsel with others. Often we hear that older leaders are wiser, but that is certainly the case in many times. But here we see that older leaders can actually be foolish. You can be an old fool who has gotten better at doing evil and just keep creating more and more problems. You can go from good to bad. I mean, read the book of Kings. We got Uzziah, for example. When he was strong, he grew proud and ended up in destruction. He reigned for, for uh, 52 years, but was destroyed by his own pride. This old fool was no longer teachable. Wisdom comes from humble godliness over time. Are, are you getting older? Let me ask this for some of the older folks. Are you getting older or are you getting wiser? Because they're not the same. You see, the Bible will see young leaders and see them as actually, they can, they can be wiser than older leaders. The older can actually lose wisdom. So it's not the age that makes the difference, but it's the heart. The disciples were very young, like Timothy, in his early 30s, maybe. However, Paul was about 60 when he wrote Romans, and, and he wanted to be on mission more and more. John was an old man when he wrote the book of Revelation. So the question is, will we be humble and teachable in whatever the things that we lead? And second, leaders should humbly recognize that life is short, and so is fame and recognition. It only lasts but so long. Another king will replace the present king. Another president will replace our current president. Another coach replaces the next coach. Another pastor will replace another pastor and so on. So in conclusion, how does this text point us to Jesus? Because all in all, this is what this text is about. It's about pointing us to Jesus. So let me help us think about that as we prepare to take the Lord's table together. In Jesus, we find comfort. We are not alone. A comforter who is always with us. Because of Jesus, we are not alone. He is with us in our trials, in our suffering, or any oppression that we might face. Second, because of Jesus, we can be content. Keep your life free of the love of money. Be content with what you have. For Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Third, because of Jesus, we will have access to community. Every single one of us here have access to real community. Through Jesus, we're brought not 
only into a relationship with God, but also his people. So because he has given you access, step in to Christ and to his people. Because of Jesus, fourth, we get to partner with him and with one another in mission. We don't have to partner alone. We don't have to work alone. We can actually collaborate. We can partner. We can do this mission that he's invited us into with him and with others. Not as competitors, but as collaborators. And friends, this is all by grace. We don't deserve it. We don't earn it. It has been granted to us by grace. And it's all made possible through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Our Jesus experienced oppression and sorrow. Our Jesus, he suffered and died alone in order to bring us into right relationship with God and with one another. And friends, he died for those of us who did not welcome and comfort the oppressed. He died for the lazy. He died for the envious. He died for the self-absorbed, greedy worker. He, he died for the arrogant leader who thinks that they're all that. Our Christ died for such sinners. And by his power, he changes and transform us, transforms us from the inside out into tender comforters, into selfless people who love our neighbors. He transforms us into people who are content with basic necessities because we have found Christ enough, who is better than all other pleasures. He has transformed us into people who pour out ourselves for the hurting and the oppressed, into servant leaders who prepare the way for the future. And one day, friends, one day, church, our Jesus will finally, once for all, end injustice and the oppression once and for all. And he will bring us into sweet companionship with himself and all of the redeemed forever and ever. And this king, the king of kings, unlike any other kings, his glory will not fade away and be forgotten. He is the only king that is irreplaceable. Let's pray.